At this time, we are going to uh, do our scripture readings. So uh, will you give your attention now to the reading of God's own word from Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their asherim, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. I think for our culture today, this passage contains one of the most controversial verses in the Bible. Verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's controversial because our culture tells us the opposite. One of our most cherished values is to be true to yourself. You do you. The idea is that somewhere deep inside of us, there's a pure self. And we should always follow and express our deepest desires that spring from this true self. Our hearts should guide our relationships and our career decisions. Our lifestyle should be a reflection of our inner self. That's a true, authentic life, and that's what will make us happy. And so anything that hinders this self-expression is seen as oppressive, religion perhaps being the chief culprit. And there are parts of this sentiment, sentiment that Christianity affirms. One of the Ten Commandments is, do not lie. We should seek to live a life of honesty rather than pretense. And it's good also to know yourself, to know your deepest desires and your deepest longings. 
But the difference in Christianity is that we should know those desires, but we shouldn't always follow those desires. Oftentimes we need to confess those desires as sin before God. When I search my heart, there's a lot more pride and selfishness to confess than there is anything good to follow. When my heart tells me to be impatient or angry with my wife, that's deceitful. That's not what's actually best for anyone. That's not what will make me or my wife happy. I shouldn't follow my heart. I should repent of my heart. Our culture tells us that we should follow our heart because it believes at bottom our heart is good. Sure, there may be sometimes we're tempted to do wrong, but at our core, we're basically good people. In fact, much of what leads us to wrong others is a result of artificial norms being imposed on us or wrong being done to us. If you took all that away, we would be fundamentally good people. And so we can trust our hearts. We live best when we're true to ourselves because our hearts will lead us in the right direction. And that's all fine if it's true. Sounds good. It sounds like a positive, self-empowering message. But there's a lot at stake here. What if it's not true? What if this verse from Jeremiah is true and my heart is actually sick? If I spend my life following my heart and it turns out that my heart has been wrong the whole time, that's going to cause a, a lot of problems, both for me and for everyone around me. If my heart is actually what's causing me and others harm, then I need to recognize that as soon as possible. Last week I was heading home from the park, uh, but I accidentally got on the wrong train. I wasn't really paying attention. I was answering emails and messages on my phone. And so instead of getting on the train headed downtown, I got onto the train headed into Queens. Now, thankfully, when we got to the next stop, I realized this, so I got off and, and got back onto a train heading in the right direction. But imagine I didn't realize this. Or imagine the train wasn't just heading in the wrong direction. Imagine the train was also deceitful. Imagine that at each stop, the announcements tell me I'm headed in the right direction. 57th, 49th, Times Square. The whole time I think I'm heading home, and it's not until I'm at the end of the line and exit the train deep into Queens that I realize that all along I was heading in the wrong direction. Jeremiah 17 confronts us with a question, and our entire lives, and indeed all of eternity, is at stake. Will you trust in the Lord, or will you trust in your heart? And in this passage, we see that God's people had chosen the former. This passage is actually a pretty severe judgment against God's people for them following their own sinful hearts. The first three verses give us three reasons for God's judgment. And let me suggest that as we look at these three reasons quickly, we also examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, in whom am I trusting? So the first reason for God's judgment is this. God says, the sin of Judah is engraved on the tablet of their heart. The mention of tablet would have reminded the Israelites of the Ten Commandments, which God wrote on tablets of stone. God's people were meant to internalize those commandments so that it was as if they were written not just on stone, but on the tablets of their very heart. Listen to what God tells his people in the book of Proverbs. He says, treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. That's some striking imagery. We're meant to be so formed by God's commandments that it's as if they're written on our hearts. His commandments should guide our every thought and decision. So take a minute and ask yourself, 
Does my heart delight in God's ways? Or do his commandments seem burdensome and out of touch? Do God's commandments inform the way I work, the, how much I work, and the way I relate to friends and romantic partners? Or do I trust instead in my own ways or in what I see everyone around me doing? We're to write God's commandments on the tablet of our hearts, but in Jeremiah, it's the sin of God's people that's written on the tablet of their hearts. The second reason for God's judgment is that their sin is, quote, on the horns of their altar. This is referring to when the priests of Israel made a sin offering to the Lord. They would smear some of the blood of the sacrifice on the horns of the altar. It was part of making atonement for their sin. But here God says, instead of blood, it's their sin that covers the horns of the altar. And the reason is that while they may have been doing all the right things outwardly, inwardly their hearts were far from God. This is a warning to us, especially those of us like myself who have been in the church for a while now. Our familiarity with God can be mistaken for intimacy with him. It's possible to come to church every week to give sacrificially to the church, even to serve in the church, while all the while our hearts are far from God. In Jeremiah, the people were coming to offer sacrifices, which cost them something. They were actively and sacrificially participating in worship, but in their hearts, they weren't trusting in God. They weren't coming to him as the one who can forgive their sins and give them life. Instead of the blood of a sacrifice, it's their sin that covers the horns of the altar. And so instead of atonement, there's judgment. And we learn more about this in the next verse. Here's the third reason for God's judgment. Take a look at verse two. It says, their children remember their altars and their asherim. This is a reference to Canaanite gods, the idols of the surrounding nations. And this helps us understand a bit more about the second reason for God's judgment. God's people were making sacrifices to the Lord on his altar, but then the next day they'd go and sacrifice to a Canaanite god. They weren't worshiping the Lord as the one true God. Their hearts were drawn to other gods. And our hearts are the same today. Asherah was the Canaanite fertility goddess, which meant, among other things, they worshiped her in hopes that she would provide a, a good harvest for them and provide for their needs. And we still desire the same things today. We want to put food on our table. We want to have, provide a good life for our family. And we may not bow down to a wooden pole, which is what ashram were, but in many other subtler ways, our hearts look away from God for life, security, and happiness. When you look at your bank account, do you thank God for how he's provided for you and ask him to continue to supply your needs? Or do you get tense and anxious? What does that say about where you're placing your trust? Or here's another one that was big in Jeremiah's time and also for us today, the Sabbath. God tells us to rest from our work on Sundays. And ironically, that can be quite difficult. It's tempting to check our email and do some work, hoping it will ensure we get that next promotion. Maybe resting on the Sabbath even puts your job at risk. It's an exercise in trust to make Sundays a day of rest and worship. Ask yourself, am I trusting in my own effort or am I trusting that God will provide? We're not that different from the ancient Israelites. Our hearts are divided. There's a pull away from trusting in God. There's another important part in this verse too. We see that their children were worshiping these foreign gods. Going back again to when God first gave his people the Ten Commandments, God said this to them, 
He said, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And then listen to this part. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. God commanded his people to teach his ways to their children. They were to store up his words in their heart and to pass that love for God onto their children. But instead of teaching their children to remember God's commandment, their children remembered the idols of the nations. These parents did indeed, indeed pass on to their children that which they loved, but it wasn't a love for God. It was an idolatry for other gods. And the same is true for parents today. You pass on to your children that which you love. Today is Mother's Day. We're celebrating the important role mothers play in our lives. If you're a parent, the most important thing you can do is to teach your kids who our God is. You don't have to be an expert teacher. You don't have to go to seminary. Tell them about what you're learning. Talk with them about this sermon and pray with them and for them. Pass on your love for God. And if you have a mother who did that, like I do, thank her today. So here are the three reasons for God's judgment. First, instead of writing God's law on their hearts, it was their sin that was engraved there. Second, instead of worshiping the Lord and offering sacrifices to atone for their sin, it was their sin that covered their altar. And third, instead of teaching their children to remember God's commandments, their children remembered their foreign gods. And God had warned his people about this time and time again. but They didn't heed his warning, so God speaks these words of judgment that we see in verse 3. It's a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of God's people that was about to happen because of their unrepentant sin. In the next few verses, we see the choice before Judah. And it's the central question of the passage. Will they trust in themselves or will they trust in the Lord? And the same choice is before each one of us today. Will you trust God to provide for your daily needs or will you be anxious about providing those things yourself? Will you trust that God's ways are best and treasure his commandments in your heart? Or will you distrust God and go your own way? Here's what God says. Take a look at verse five. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart, there's that key word again, whose heart turns away from the Lord and here's his curse. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. It's a picture of a barren, lifeless, and joyless existence. That's the curse for those whose hearts turn away from the Lord. But the other way is to choose God. Look at verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. And here's the blessing. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when he comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Instead of a barren wasteland, it's a lush tree, never lacking. And it can endure even the harshest conditions. Even in the midst of a drought, it's supplied with all it needs, not just to survive, but to thrive. 
And this wasn't only a metaphor for Judah when they heard this. They were actually living through a drought at the time. God is promising to sustain them through a very real physical disaster. And we can cling to that same promise today. This passage promises that no matter what you're going through, God will sustain you if you trust in him. That doesn't mean trouble won't come, but it means that when it does come, God will be with you. So this week when you feel that familiar anxiety welling up within you, cry out to him. Ask him for help. Even ask a friend to pray for you. That's what it looks like to trust in God. This was also a promise that God would sustain Jeremiah through persecution. Earlier in Jeremiah, we learned that his own family was seeking his life. Imagine what that must have been like. God promises that even in the midst of such oppression, even in the midst of disaster, we need not be anxious, for he brings life to those who look to him for strength. Ask God to help you believe that promise this week. Ask him to grow your faith in him. And this trust in the Lord carries us even through the judgment of God. We're told earlier in Jeremiah that the reason there was a drought is because of the sin of God's people. The Lord had caused this drought as a judgment against them. In fact, if you go yet again back to when God first gave his people the Ten Commandments, you'll see that God warned them that if they forsook him, he would cause the rain in their land to cease. That's exactly what he did here. So what God is promising in Jeremiah is that he will bring those who trust in him even through his judgment against sin. In fact, judgment and salvation are always tied together in the Bible. We'll see in a minute how this applies personally to Jeremiah's situation. And for us today, our baptism is a picture of salvation through judgment. Romans 6 tells us that we're baptized into the death of Christ. Jesus Christ died the death that we deserve so that we might pass safely through the judgment of God. Our salvation is found in the wrath that Christ bears for us. So we need not be anxious in the face of God's judgment. When you feel the weight of guilt for your sin, don't let that turn you away from God. Let it drive you all the more to his merciful and loving arms. Our God is a loving Father who delights to forgive his children. Remember your baptism. Let that be a source of hope. Cling to Jesus Christ and he will carry you even through the judgment of God. And not a hair on your head will be harmed for on his shoulders he himself fully bore the wrath of God on your behalf. The next two verses are the center of this passage. Look at verse nine again. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This verse says two things about your heart. First, it's deceitful. Your heart can't be trusted. It will lead you astray. It's like a subway train calling off the wrong stops. And second, your heart is desperately sick. That train won't lead you home. It won't lead you to happiness. Our culture tells us that our heart is basically good and the best thing for ourselves and for society is that we are true to ourselves. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that our heart isn't always in the right place. We know there's sin deep in our hearts and that if we were true to ourselves, we would cause tremendous harm to ourselves and to others. When someone offends me and my heart tells me to be angry or bitter, that doesn't make the world a better place. 
I make the world a better place when I forsake my heart and follow God's command to love even my enemies and to pray for those who persecute me. That's not authentic to my heart, but it's good. Far from being something we should follow indisputably, our hearts are sick and need to be healed and transformed. Don't follow your heart. Go to the one who can heal and transform it. Verse 9 asks, who can understand this deceitful thing, the heart? The implied answer is no one. No one can understand the human heart. But verse 10 tells us there is one who can understand. Take a look at verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And just like God's promise about the drought, this verse is not some abstract thing. It's very personal to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was prophesying judgment against his people, and not surprisingly, many of them didn't like it. And because of that, some of them were persecuting Jeremiah, even seeking his life. This verse is Jeremiah's vindication. God says he knows the intentions of the heart. He knows Jeremiah is seeking him, and he knows there are others who are persecuting Jeremiah, and he will judge those others. So again, we see salvation and judgment tied together. Jeremiah will be saved from persecution when God, judge, when God judges his persecutors. And now you may be thinking, wait, how can Jeremiah's heart vindicate him? Didn't we uh, just talk about all this, about the heart being deceitful and desperately sick? Doesn't our heart condemn us rather than vindicate us? It's not that Jeremiah was sinless and that his heart was totally pure. It's that rather than turn his heart away from the Lord and trust in himself, like the cursed man in verse five, Jeremiah turns toward the Lord. He repents of his sinful heart and trusts in God, like the blessed man in verse seven. Jeremiah's heart is vindicated not because he's sinless, but because he trusts in God and strives to repent of his sin. When God says he will repay everyone according to his ways, he's not saying that grace goes out the window and in the end it's all about what, how much good we do or don't do. God's saying it's about faith and repentance, which are another two things that are always tied together in the Bible. We talk a lot about faith and not always as much about repentance, but the two are never separated. True faith repents of sin and strives to live a godly life. That doesn't mean we always live perfectly, far from it. We still sin, but when we sin, we regret that we did, and we strive to obey God more faithfully. Like a healthy tree, there will be fruit in our lives, good works that evidence our faith. So here's the division when the Lord searches the hearts, searches our hearts. It's the same choice between the cursed man and the blessed man. Where do you place your trust? When it feels like your job is on the line or you're at risk of losing a client, how do you respond? The other day, I texted a friend from the church who sounded like it was very possible he would soon be out of a job. I told him I was praying for him and uh, asked him how he was doing. And this is what he said. I'm doing okay and trusting in the Lord. His plans are perfect for me, perfect for all of us. What an incredible response of faith. That's a heart that trusts in the Lord. That same week I was talking to another friend from the church and, and she said, you know, I don't really worry about my job or my finances anymore. I used to quite a bit. I've been poor, but I've seen how God has carried me through it all. This week when you're trying to make a decision about a relationship or how to respond to a conflict at work, don't follow your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not 
on your own understanding. When there's a conflict between what you want to do and what you know God commands you to do, don't follow your heart. Treasure God's commandments in your heart and strive to walk in his ways. Don't question God's ways. Question your heart. Don't submit to the desires of your heart. Submit your heart to God. But all this is much easier said than done. Even the Apostle Paul talked about his intense inner struggle to follow God's law rather than his own sinful heart. And it's made even harder when not only does our sinful heart want to do what our sinful heart wants to do, but our society is also constantly telling us to give in, to follow our heart. We need someone who would deliver us from this body of death, as Paul calls it. The last two verses bookend this passage, and they set out two divergent destinies. Look at verse 12. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written on the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. The question of this passage has massive ramifications, not only for this life, but also for the next. Because here's the most important matter of trust. Do you trust in God to save you from your sin? to deliver you from this body of death? Do you believe your heart is healthy and good or do you look to God for forgiveness and healing? This passage warns us that those who turn from God with their sin written on their heart will be written on the earth. They'll be like a shrub in the desert, lifeless and cursed. But those who trust in God who forsake their wicked heart and turn to the fountain of living water will never thirst. Following your heart doesn't lead to happiness. Following your heart leads to joylessness. It's deceitful, like a night of drunkenness. Happy for a time, but then comes the hangover. Lasting joy is found only in trusting in the fountain of living water. Jesus Christ is that fountain of living water. In him we find salvation through judgment. He bore the curse our sinful hearts deserve so that we might pass safely through the judgment of God. And he alone has a heart pure enough to be truly vindicated. Like Jeremiah, we can be vindicated before men by our trust in God. God will judge those who persecute his church. But only Jesus Christ can be vindicated before God by the merit of his righteousness. He was vindicated when the Spirit raised him from the dead, and in our baptism, we too are raised to new life with him. And for those who have been baptized into Christ's death, the situation in Jeremiah 17 is reversed. Look at this. Remember, there were three reasons for God's judgment. First, the sin of his people was engraved upon their hearts. Second, instead of offering sacrifices to atone for their sin, their sin covered the altar. And third, instead of teaching their children to remember God's commandments, their children remembered their foreign gods. But for those who trust in God, this whole situation is reversed. God promises later in Jeremiah that instead of our sin being written on our hearts, he will write his law upon our hearts. Our hearts are transformed as the Holy Spirit grows our faith, love, and obedience to him. 
Instead of our sin covering us, the forgiveness and mercy of God covers us. The blood of Christ covers our sin. And instead of our children being led to worship other gods, the children of believers are made holy as we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so rather than a lifeless, barren desert, a cursed life apart from God, the Lord is our hope and our destiny is the glorious sanctuary of our God. As we await that sanctuary, don't trust in your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Don't be true to yourself. Be true to the Lord. Your heart is desperately sick. Go to the one who can heal and transform it. Trust in him. Pray the prayer of Jeremiah from verse 14. This is what he prays. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. Let's pray.